0: I was able to finish like my undergrad degree in, in like two and a half years uh, at MIT. So I finished my uh, CS degree then. And then I ended up doing my master's the other one and a half years. You know, my one of my core memories from the time when I was growing up in India is um, my grandma actually ran a restaurant. So part of my love for food, probably my interest in entrepreneurism as well is, is kind of coming from my grandma. What this wave of AI is doing is it's diminishing the
1: marginal cost of intelligence. Welcome everyone to another episode of Venture Vibes, where we hang out with cool people who build cool shit. Uh, today, we have Karan Kashyap, the CEO and co-founder of Posh, who's building conversational AI for banking. Hey, Karan, how's it going? Hey, pretty good, handsome. So Karan, uh, there's a lot to unpack here and we've had a number of AI co-founders and, uh, you know, I- I'd love to get a quick introduction of who you are and what Posh does for our listeners. Sounds good.
0: So I'm Karan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Posh AI. And we're uh, an AI company that's focused on helping banks and credit unions uh, best serve their communities and their communities might be their customers, uh, actual end users that have accounts with them. Those communities could also be their employees and staff. A big part of our focus on AI is to empower humans and help humans um, more be more productive, but also generally perform better and be happier as well and um, communities could also be the actual local communities that they serve a lot of our customers are what we call community financial institutions which means that they're not you know the the really large national banks that have branches all over the country these are very kind of local community banks credit unions banks that might just be in one town or you you might have them in your local town so uh they do a lot of work actually kind of charitable work and community activism and stuff in their local communities so the the more we can bolster uh these banks and credit unions the, the more we can also help create those ripple effects that ultimately help those communities as well. In fact, um, a lot of people call banks and credit unions as community banks and credit unions as sort of the, the backbone of the American economy for that reason.
1: Interesting. I'm curious, Karin, so I think the mission makes a lot of sense, right? What are some of the things you actually build? What are some of the experiences I may have with Posh? And mm-hmm. maybe I didn't even know that it was Posh that it was interacting with.
0: Right. So, yeah. So the the one, one example, uh, I'll give you a, a few instances of what we're building, but One example of our products is uh, a knowledge base that we build for uh, call center agents, branch tellers, and we're also working on exposing that to uh, loan staff as well. But uh, we wanna empower the people that you're talking to when you call into a bank or you go into a bank branch to have better access to knowledge, right? And today, a lot of banks and credit unions they have fairly outdated knowledge management stacks. So they might just, for example, just have a Google Drive types set up where it's a bunch of folders and PDF documents, and other types of documents in in those folders. So as you can imagine, if you're coming in um, with a pretty unique problem that you have and you talk to say a call center agent, um, they might spend a lot of time having to go look up those information behind the scenes. They'll probably put you on hold and you probably don't enjoy being put on hold for a long time and certainly the customer- I love the elevator
1: elevator music. (laughs) It's my highlight of the day. (laughs)
0: So the the customer service agents, they they get get really like worked up also and they know you're on hold for a long time. Like you hate being on hold, but they hate having to put you on hold too. And they know that like, oh man, the longer you're on hold, the more likely you are to be pretty upset with them. Right. Um, So giving them access to knowledge better is a great way to help them be more efficient, to help also make new hires at a bank more productive faster um, Mm -hmm. and ultimately help them serve you better. Right. So this is, that's an example of where you might not even know that Osh in the mix, but uh, in fact, the service that you're getting from an agent could be augmented by AI. Mm-hmm. Um, the other products are a lot more obvious. So we have uh, virtual assistants that we actually deploy in digital properties like a bank or credit union's website or a mobile app or their uh, online portal once you log in. Um, and also a voice virtual assistant that um, answers calls and helps get you to the right person and can even help automate some basic stuff. So that's where... Um, even brands like Amazon are going. If you try to do an Amazon return, you'll get, you know, sometimes AI assistants that try to troubleshoot. So our goal there is, you know, we recognize that some problems or topics are things that AI probably can't or shouldn't do. Can't meaning maybe the the co- complexity of that use case is uh, uh, a little bit above the the AI's capabilities. Although with things like large language models, maybe that starts pushing the boundary a little bit. Um, but the other thing is that with um, certain sensitive topics, right, like fraud or hardship maybe you want the human touch, you want the empathy, the relationship building component of it as well. So um, that's that's kind of the experiences we have, right? We wanna make sure that even if the AI is not able to or shouldn't help you with a particular problem, let's at least understand what your problem is so that we don't make you jump through a bunch of hoops to get to the right person. How can we efficiently get to the right person and ultimately help that person also solve your problem by giving them better access to information and knowledge.
1: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So sort of the the end goal that we as consumers feel is shorter wait times, more efficient interactions with with banks and, and sort of credit unions and financial institutions. Um, and, and the way you solve that is could be direct or indirect. Right. So I could be directly talking to a chat bot that can resolve simple questions, uh, or I could be talking with a human who is then, you know, using a knowledge based solution to, to find the answers faster.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and by the way, it's also the 24-7 component. So um, if you think about the biggest brands, uh, you typically can reach them any time of the day, right? So um, the ways we can use AI to kind of bridge that gap, provide round-the-clock support, that's pretty meaningful as well.
2: Where does the name come from?
0: The word posh. Yeah, so uh, there's a bit of a story behind that word, etymology-wise. Um, supposedly, and apparently people have kind of contested this, but supposedly... The word POSH stands for port out starboard home, P-O-S-H, right? And it refers to uh, ships that used to sail between England and India during the spice trade. So uh, leave England and then go to India and come back. And the best cabins on those ships were port side out from England and starboard side home back to England, right? So like out of England and back to England. Um, So you got port side out cabin and a starboard side home cabin. Um, I think it has to do with sunlight. Uh, yeah, like, I was going to guess. We'll get scurvy and stuff, I guess. I don't know if that's the thing. Uh,
1: yeah, because port's on the left, right? Starboard's on the right. So yeah. <laughs> port side out to India, sailing east, which means you're facing north. for the Well, America you're not journey. directly
0: going. You have to, you have, you have to like go around True. Africa and stuff, right? So like the longer part of that journey might be like going around like the Cape of Good Hope and South Africa or whatever that is. And Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I never I, knew it was an acronym. Like, yeah. I haven't like done all the research. I, I know enough to like explain the word, but, um, we're, we're an AI company that does language AI. Right. So, um, we wanted a word that like was short, catchy, memorable, um, had some connotation of like good quality and stuff. Cause we're a cu- like customer service focused company. We want to have like a mosh experience, but, mm-hmm. um, still wanted a word that had that cool backstory itself because it's a linguistic thing. So. Posh bit that bill.
1: And the most important thing is that Posh.ai domain was available. I was going to say, <laughs> nice. There's like several founders had the exact same thing where like they have several options and whichever yeah. one had the best Which domain available was the winner.
0: Yeah. And then and then now founders do things like get whatever or try whatever. So it's like get Posh.ai or try yeah. Posh.ai. Yeah. So you have, you have ways right. to work. Around. Try Posh app.ai. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. it's like it's a good name. It's very catchy. But like Clavio doesn't really have an origin. I mean, they try to make up afterwards, but <laughs> yeah, not really. Uh, just for, for the for the uh, domain, basically. That yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Um, okay, so um, I've tried a lot of chatbots with banks, right? Uh, and they all suck. They are really slow. <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about. How is Posh different? How are we fixing that?
0: Yeah. So. If those were good, there wouldn't be a business case to start a new company in the space, right? Like usually the, the best ideas are undervalued and business opportunities exist when whatever's there isn't good enough or not as good as it could be, right? Um, I think the difference in Posh is that we weren't the first company that's done this. In fact, that's a good thing, because there have been companies that have been in this space since like 2012, 2013, maybe even earlier that I'm not aware of, but Um, We call that era like the chatbot 1.0 era, right? So these were companies that were using, you know, kind of a much more legacy, state of the art, um, much more statistical approaches in machine learning, quality or caliber of NLP wasn't like nearly as good as it is today. Um, the, The big kind of milestone in the journey of NLP happened in 2017 when Google released a paper that basically introduced the transformer architecture, which is like kind of yeah, the bedrock for what became the, exactly, yeah. yeah. That became the bedrock for like modern large language models, and that's like you know kind of the the catalyst that created a lot of advancements after that. We started Posh in 2018, right? And um, one difference I'd say from what we're doing, or actually a couple of key differences. One is that we 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 were born in a new era of technology, and that's been kind of zero to one. Posh went from zero to one, that technology also kind of went zero to one, and now it's further ahead as well uh, around the same time. So we've been kind of utilizing that tech uh, um, at at a core part of what we're building. The other thing is that we're extremely vertically focused, right? And I think some of the challenges we've seen with chatbot platforms in the past and how bots were built in the past is that they weren't built on a purpose-built kind of AI platform meant for banking. They were built on maybe a more horizontal platform, right? So um, a good example of that is like when a chatbot boom kind of happened in 2015, 2016. Um, Facebook at the time, not meta at the time, but Facebook launched a bunch of like AI type stuff. Uh, and then you had Google and Amazon and Microsoft and others, IBM all launch kind of conversational AI platforms and things like that. Um, those platforms were not meant to be for a particular vertical. They were kind of meant to be horizontal, right? So anybody could use that platform and build a virtual assistant. And we saw a bunch of companies trying to, go build vertical solutions, but built on a horizontal platform. And that doesn't work super well. Like you run into limitations, you run into areas where, yeah, like the use case probably could have been a good use case, but you went about it the wrong way because you were using a platform that wasn't designed for that use case. Right. And what we are doing at Posh is we said, look, we don't care about other industries or verticals. Let's just do banking really well. Um, And let's do it with the best technology that's available. And it turns out that This year and also a few years before and all that like technology has just accelerated a lot right so um, does that mean like we think we're you know the 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 best chatbot like i think if you ask me the question two years from now i'll look back at where we are today and say we suck (laughs) but that's that's what makes it awesome right someone's leading the charge and someone is able to bring the latest and greatest in that technology to a market like community banks and credit unions who honestly don't have the resources or the expertise or access to talent to to actually solve those problems
2: all right, just digging this into this a little bit. Uh, two two follow-ups. Um, one is, you know, anything with banking security is super important, right? Uh, I guess as a as a company, how you're dealing with that challenge compared to you know just building AI for e-commerce platform, right? That's much less uh, security sensitive. Um, yeah. And also, you mentioned before that uh, sounds like another vertical for this is actually become a training tool for bank employees, right? Um, can you also comment a little bit on that?
0: Yeah. Um, so security-wise, I mean, we we focus on just the banking vertical. So obviously, we need to um, meet certain criteria from a regulatory standpoint or compliance standpoint in order to even be viable to work with a bank. We have to get certain types of audits and those auditors basically make sure that we're not just BSing that it's all like legitimate, right? Um, and I'd say like from our standpoint, even with this kind of new uh, era of like larger LLMs and it's really difficult, like for a business right now, um, to go build an element from scratch. Like it just takes a lot of resources and money, um, and so a lot of companies are are going to resort to like using um, foundational models that are prov- that are kind of provided by larger companies like uh, Cohere, OpenAI, and others. And there's going to be a whole bunch of these, right? Like there's a lot of big tech companies that are going to start to uh, build and keep maintaining and maturing these models, but fine tuning these things is where uh, vertical application providers can really start to unlock some of that value. And um, there'll be a lot of techniques on how to fine tune for particular verticals and stuff like that, which is good. Um, but there's always some risk when you're like, hey, you're, you're using some you know cloud cloud hosted third party cloud hosted foundational model because uh, you're having to obviously send them some stuff in order to get back uh, you know the, the the vectorized response. But um, I, I think um, one thing that we're being really careful about is we can actually sanitize things before we actually send it out. So if we're getting an inquiry from a customer using our virtual assistant, we don't have to send exactly that raw information to um, a provider, right? We're able to kind of mask out um, certain sensitive categories or, or phrases or words or whatever it is. Um, and we can tokenize those things basically. Like if it's a social security number, we just take out the actual number and put in a token saying this is an SSN, <laughs> right? So that the model understands that this is an SSN, but it doesn't have to actually know what the number is. Like those are the kind of things that we can do. Um, And then the other thing is that we can be very methodical in how we select those partners, right? Um, You know, there's been concerns around like chat GPT because it like uses the information that you interact with it to like go and retrain itself. And therefore um, you can have leakage of like sensitive company secrets and all that. Um, But as LM providers, like the the application layer, and then you have the foundational layer as the foundational layer keeps you know kind of advancing as well. And there's competition there. more and more, they're going to be companies that kind of position themselves as meant for enterprise use cases, meaning they're going to have like zero data retention policies and privacy controls of their own and commitments and guarantees. And like we're already seeing those things play out, right? So um, we can just choose the right partner from that standpoint, but then still still be careful about how we sanitize things. Um, and it's no different than what we've already been doing. Posh from the beginning has been kind of LLM-based or transform architecture-based. It's just that the... LLMs that we're seeing in the wild today, foundational models, are a lot bigger and more powerful than things that we could afford to train or build in-house. So there's going to be opportunities for us to um, augment those as opposed to just doing everything in-house like we've been doing in the past, right? That's kind of the difference. Um, And one example of that, like you brought up, is the training stuff, right? Let us try to uh, build a system that can help your employees, right? And it's like one of those things where call center agent jobs are not considered the, the, the sexiest jobs, right? And you can understand Um, The great resignation that happened in the pandemic, like call center jobs were one of the biggest types of jobs that were impacted. So one of the reasons those jobs are really difficult is because you deal with unhappy customers, but it's also like a high stress job. You're like putting people on hold, scrambling to find the information, all that stuff. Um, And therefore it also becomes really difficult to find people and hire them, train them and retain them. So um, the retention side of it, you know, I hope we have an impact there by ultimately having happier people. but I think the time to train is also something we can make a big dent on. Right. But if we say, look, there's an AI assistant that kind of solves the need for you to have to memorize a lot, like learn a baseline amount of stuff, learn about the company, the ethos, like our attitude towards uh, hospitality and these kinds of things, but then like the actual information is a lot less critical and you can actually not uh, memorize all this stuff because it won't take you five, seven minutes to go look this up. Like it's much faster. You can probably get people that are ramping and productive much sooner. Um, and not compromising on quality and ultimately maybe making them happier too, because if they can help the customer faster without, you know, keeping them on hold for a long
1: time, they're also getting less frustration and anger (laughs) on the other side, right? Right. I want to dig into this more, but I think it'd be great if we can take a step back and sort of set the stage a little bit and help us learn a little bit about you and your story, right. As a human being. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you come from, sort of where you grew up, a story about your childhood?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Bangalore, India. Uh, my parents uh, met there and we lived there for about five years before they moved to the U.S. Um, my dad got a job here. So we moved here, hopped around quite a bit, um, a few different cities across the country, and we settled in Dallas, Texas. Um, in India, like I remember a decent amount because I think I was like about five years old. So I still had like some some little memory of my time there and we would go back and visit too. So it's not like um, I never saw India again. Right. But, um, you know, my one of my core memories from the time when I was growing up in India is uh, my grandma actually ran a restaurant. So part of my love for food, probably my interest in entrepreneurism as well is is kind of coming from my grandma. Um, You, you don't normally see women. In India, at that time, like twenty years ago, especially a woman who I think she at that point she was probably around like fifty years old or maybe a little older. But um, from her generation, right, um, taking initiatives to like do these kinds of things, right, um, be a, a business,
1: business owner and exactly. entrepreneur.
0: She was like a, a great cook and like you know made some awesome stuff, but um, she was like really business savvy too. Like she knew how to market, she knew how to um, you know, serve customers well, like, you know, uh, made people happy, right? It's not just like, it's not just about the food being good. It's about how you feel after being at a place, right? Like everything else goes into it. And a big part of that is the hospitality that, that, um, comes, comes out of that as well. So, um, that was like, obviously like something that was like a core memory for me and, and that always kind of inspired me to like, Hey, I, you know, I want to like, you know, maybe, maybe not start a restaurant, but I want to, want to start something at some point. Right. Uh, that's, it's always been there to me, um, When I grew up in Texas, uh, you know, I'd say pretty early on, I was really interested in in math. I ended up actually kind of finishing all of my high school stuff by um, 10th grade. So um, you know, I was at a point where I was like, yeah, like I'm kind of done with high school. Um, I want to go like enroll in university. So I ended up starting uh, college uh, at 16 instead of 11th and 12th grade, I was uh, in college for two years there. And uh, I did a lot of math classes. And I kind of like lost my love for math in a little sense too. like, like the more theoretical I got, um, the less interesting I thought it was like, it was cool, but I was like, man, like, there's not a whole lot of like immediate application value that I'm recognizing here. So, um, I ended up like wanting to switch into computer science anyway, after those two years, like I just did computer science uh, specifically like machine learning and stuff as uh, a great way to like do the math stuff that I love, but also apply it to actually building stuff. And so I ended up um, getting into MIT after those two years. MIT has always been my dream school. Um, and so I was really stoked to get in. And um, when I went to MIT, I actually started the computer science track. But the cool thing is that because I had so many of those math classes already done, um, I, I got credit for a good number of those too. So I was able to finish like, my undergrad degree in, in like two and a half years uh, at MIT. So I finished my uh, CS degree then. And then I ended up doing my master's the other one and a half years. So in four years, I, I finished the bachelor's and master's. And Masters is where I really got into, like, natural language understanding and speech recognition. So um, I've always been interested in, like, sci-fi stuff. And um, I-, I think the one movie that, like, well, two, two things that got me really excited about it. One was, like, just watching Iron Man and seeing Jarvis. And I was like, that yeah. that's that's freaking awesome. Like, these holograms and, like, the AI system that kind of helps you do stuff. Like, that's pretty awesome. Um, and then the other thing was the movie Her, the Joaquin Phoenix movie with, like, the little earpiece and he falls in love with it. Like, that, that's a little bit much. but. I was just like man this is this really is going to be the future of how humans interact with me. it's going to be so seamless right and maybe maybe Elon Musk is taking it to a, like a level further with like neuralink and stuff but like co- conversation is just so natural um it's how humans have always communicated for you know thousands of years right. so it makes sense that that becomes the interface by which people want to also interact with technology that doesn't mean people are going to like get away from screens and buttons like i, I just think it'll become one other mode right. and um i wanted to get into that space that's what kind of drew me into that research track and uh, my co-founder and i um, ended up joining the same lab. He was a, a little bit after me. Um, we were the same year undergrad. I finished earlier, but he ended up joining the same lab after me. And, um, that's kind of, that's kind of what started the dominoes.
2: Yeah. So I'm curious though, um, back in college, sounds like you were, you already decided you want to start your own company, right? So how does that transition happen? Cause most people find a job afterwards. Yeah. Uh, why did you decide to start your company directly?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, it almost didn't happen a couple of times. So um, like we almost didn't start a company, but uh, M- Matt, Matt and myself, uh, we had some other friends too, an uh, undergrad, like a lot of us were really into hackathons and just building apps and stuff like that. So um, it kind of started by just us like, let's create some iPhone apps, like the the app store and uh, iPhone apps. Were, like that was like a big thing back then, right? Like so many companies were, startups were like, we're the iPhone app for X or Y. Like that was still the time, right? Um, and, you know, we were really interested in, Not necessarily any kind of iPhone app, but like games, like we wanted to create games. Um, And so we started like doing kind of game development for iOS. And then um, eventually that led into us winning um, uh, the MIT hackathons. We won Hack MIT junior year. We built an air guitar. So it was like right after the Apple Watch came out, Apple Watches have uh, accelerometers and gyroscopes. So we could actually use the Apple watch to simulate like a guitar pick. We could actually like, you know, do this and we recognize that motion. Nice. And then we created like a basic like guitar fretboard on the iPhone screen. So you could actually like do chords and and stuff and you could strum with this Apple watch. Right. Um, So we won the hackathon and that's pretty cool. Um, But it also like, uh, it was something that was like really cool to show people. And we started to get some consulting work um, where we were like going to businesses and saying, Hey, we can build apps for you. Right. We, we wanted to make some money as, as students too. And, um, We
1: was you and your co, uh, co-founder. Yeah. And, and some whom you I met also. pretty so, much
0: as soon as college started. Pretty much. Yeah. Got yeah. It. We got the same fraternity together. Um, it was like us two and maybe four other people, five other people. Um, and then eventually like we started to make money and, um, you know, we, decided that, hey, I- iPhone apps are great, but, like, the stuff where we can really make money is the AI, right? Um, especially,
1: like, I was talking about the, the chatbot hype craze started around 2015,
0: 2016, so... Did it really
1: start platform. that early? I feel yeah. like the rest of us didn't catch on to the chatbot thing until, I don't know, last year when ChatGPT came out.
0: Oh, well, ChatGPT is, like,
1: the new chatbot yeah.
0: wave. Yeah. There was, like, a first chatbot wave that happened in, like, 2015, 2016. That's
2: when, that's when uh, drift, like drift started, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah but uh, there, there was a lot. Like, there was a lot right. of companies. Yeah. Um, and then from like 2017 to honestly, until like, you know, maybe COVID there was, we call that time the chatbot winter, like that that's when those chatbot companies, a lot lot of them started to like kind of fall flat. Um, what's funny is that we started posh, like in the middle of chatbot winter, because we knew that there was this like promised land of better models coming out. Like we knew knew where things were going because we were studying um, NLP in, in grad school. But um, yeah, where was I? Sorry. Oh, yeah, the consulting work, right? So we, um, we, we said, let's, let's start doing more AI machine learning type stuff. Like apps are cool. But now that we're in grad school, and this was really um, fewer people, like some of those people like started to fizzle out, like, you know, some friends did it for some time. They're like, yeah, I'm busy, with like, whatever, I'm not going to do it anymore. So we kind of dwindled down a little bit. Um, we had, um, you know, the the luxury of having the MIT network, so to speak. Like we were able to hit up alums and MIT has like a really nice, like uh, corporate resource program and stuff where they work with a bunch of companies. So we were able to get intros to some big companies uh, over time. And we worked with some big companies like uh, Tiva Pharmaceuticals, like a really large publicly traded pharmaceutical company, Uh, Beckton Dickinson, a very large medical device company based in Jersey. Um, We worked with a large mortgage lending company in, in Texas. Uh, a private jet chartering company, it's pretty cool. I don't know, if, uh, I don't know what happened to them, but uh, it was like they were pretty well funded, for so like very large uh, kind of VC bet, I think. But um, yeah, we ended up we ended up making a little under uh, one point five million dollars uh, over two years when we were uh, in grad school. Nice. Um, by doing like AI consulting work on the side, right? So, so we were, did. Yeah. You guys
1: like register a an LLC or some kind of legal entity and do business.
0: Yeah, so we um, we called it Posh Development at the time. Interesting.
1: Uh, so it was already Posh.
0: It was already Posh, and we were already into like virtual assistants and natural language and stuff too. So interesting. Uh, it was fitting, and and that's why we also didn't change the name because we we're just like, hey, this this name still fits.
1: Like it makes sense. Uh, so you mentioned that you went to MIT, uh, you met some some great people that you wanted to work with, and you have this great network, right? And there's opportunities out there, and you realized, hey, I want to build more AI chatbot stuff. I think there's a future here. Um, what made you really sort of take the plunge, right? Cause like most people are pretty busy, busy enough with school and they're busy trying to land, I don't know, like an investment banker job or whatever. They come out of school. At what point did you really decide to sort of take the plunge and say, you know what, like, I'm going to forego these other opportunities and instead build a business myself.
0: Yeah. And I think what kind of convinced me was that the consulting revenue was meaningful, (laughs) like we could have probably continued that and had a good career with that. Right. Um. But it, it didn't like solve the itch of like wanting to start like a, 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 a take an idea somewhere. Right. Like that was the, like, like a product is, that you built. Yeah. It. Yeah. Consulting is like you're selling your hours, you know, you're selling your time um, and, and it's fun. I get to work on a lot of cool projects and you, know, you can you can you can do well, but um, there was no sense of like compounding value there. Right. Um, what was kind of inspiration for us to take the plunge, I think, was one um, we saw Bank of America released Erica, right a really large bank launched their own virtual assistant. First of its kind, massive amount of R&D went into it. They, I think they, they spent like a hundred million dollars to launch it. I think they spent over hundred million dollars since then on top of that to like keep maturing it and over the last few years. But um, that was the aha moment. Like I I was a member of MIT's small credit yeah. union. It's like, now it's about a billion in assets. So they're not, maybe not as small anymore, but I joined it in 2013, they were a lot smaller then. Um, and, and just thinking like, man, like Bank of America launched this like big virtual assistant. They are kind of setting the status quo over time as to like what bank virtual assistant customer service, like what are the requirements here? And you will have a, a lot of kind of community banks, credians And it, I didn't know how big the market was. I was just like walking around Boston, right. And seeing a bank almost in every corner. And I was like, interesting. There's a lot of banks. Like that's, that's in my head. I was like, there's a lot of banks Canadians. and And in, in my head, I was like, what are, what are these guys going to do that Bank of America has launched Erica? And obviously, we had been doing kind of AI virtual assistant consulting projects before that, so I knew that we could build something like this. Um, and so that we just said, let's let's go do it. You know, let's 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 stop the consulting
1: work, and this is the idea we're going to go pursue. Interesting. So the pivot was really a business model pivot. The domain is still similar to what you've already built expertise in. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I have a logistical question. Then you were still a grad student at MIT. Yeah, a school, that's not exactly known for having little to to do. Uh, I'm assuming there's still coursework you have to balance and, and the few of you are running a company while doing that and making a million and a half dollars in revenue over a couple yeah. of years. What was that like? What was the daily life like? Did you get flexibility from school to dedicate more time to this more or less full-time job or was it just like on nights and weekends? I mean, um,
0: I think that was a good experience of like just what entrepreneurship is like. You got to juggle a lot of stuff, right? Um, I think like one, one thing that was good for for us, both me and my co-founder, is by the time we really started to take on a lot of these like bigger consulting projects, um, coursework wasn't too bad. Like we had finished most of our course requirements um before. So like we were taking a couple classes at a time. So it wasn't the worst thing. And those classes were actually interesting because it was like all AI-related coursework. So like honestly, we liked those classes because it could help us do our jobs better, you know. <laughs> Um, like we were reading papers and we we're just like, oh crap, like this, that's pretty cool. It's giving us ideas for like what we want to eventually pivot into as a product. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy. Like we, we definitely still had to take final exams and class projects besides like large publicly traded companies asking us to also deliver our projects that they're paying us for. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, and I, I wouldn't trade it. I, I think that, that experience led to what eventually became what we're doing now. Like that, that, that was an important step.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds extremely impressive and also just it's a rare opportunity, right? Like not a lot of people. I I mean, large companies giving you sizable contracts to a a few kids. No disrespect, but like, you know, young people who are still students. I mean, you know, I'm sure the MIT brand played a role there. Right. Yeah. And we we were able to like use that money to actually
0: write our own seed check in a sense, you know, so we uh, one thing that's helped us uh, in a sense is we, we, we didn't raise our first round until our series A in 2021. So nice, that was like our first funding that we got. Um, we were able to kind of self fund the business and, um, and, and kind of go that route because of the consulting work. That's
1: awesome. That's very yeah, that's good. interesting. Once you, path, once
2: you IPO your own big chunk of the pie, you know, that's the best way to do it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I really also like the, uh, consulting part because. I feel like it not only allowed you to build confidence and understanding of the market, and allowed you to build that initial, you know, uh, wealth or whatever you call it that allowed you to build the second company, the the, the pivot. Right. Um, but also, I, I feel like it might have helped you realize that there is a market that there is a need um, in that space, right? And you were profitable the whole time while doing it, which is incredible because most companies. You know, like someone quits their job and they have this idea and they spend months, sometimes years searching for that product market fit, proving right. that, that there is a real need, but you already got paid to solve these problems. So right. like you sort of know that these problems already exist and they are profitable. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. just a super interesting path.
2: So what, do you, what is success to you? What drives you daily? If you think about five years from now, right, uh, what do you define as having a successful life? It could be related to your company it could be not
0: yeah yeah i mean it is very related to the company um i don't i don't have a whole lot of other like responsibilities right now i'm not married i don't have any kids or anything so like this is a lot of what i think about and do but uh i think like for me we we, we were ex- i was excited about this personally and my co-founder i know so i say we but we, we had a vision for like where the world is going um like we believed in conversational interfaces we believed in ai getting better and better um you know we kind of saw the early iterations of that with the the Transformers paper coming out. Like Chat GBT was like a kind of a big moment. It's like, oh shit, like we're getting closer to like this vision that we had, right? Like the Jarvis vision or the 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 movie her vision or whatever it is. But um like I I just want to be part of making that a reality. Like that would that would be awesome. Right. Like to know that even if it's just in the banking vertical, like if it's not like the entirety of the world, right? I know like companies like Apple obviously are much better position to like really bring that to the masses, but even if it's just for this industry, that we can like help realize a big kind of advancement and in, in a way the human race, right? Like a big part of how humans live and and what makes humans have better lives, like that. That to me is like honestly a big driver, um, and selfishly too. Like um, you know, I I wanna I wanna make sure the hard work I put in actually sees the light in the future. You know, like, I don't want to say, oh, like, you know, we were instrumental in this because we proved three ways to not do it. <laughs> you know, I'd rather say, hey, we helped actually prove a way to do it. You know, like that's, that's a lot more rewarding, obviously. Um, so I want to make sure the hard work that I put into it, that my team has put into it, um, the late nights,
1: juggling classes and consulting, all that stuff, like, sees the light. So, in other words, your definition of success here is you have this vision of where the future is going. You believe it is a future worth pursuing, and you you want the work that you and and those around you have put in to amount to something that ultimately changes how people live, right? That moves us closer to that vision that you had years ago. Right.
0: And if you think about it, like everybody that was like really bullish on virtual assistant companies had a very similar vision in a sense, like virtual assistants for like customer service, right? The the what what any business would love, and so let's say you're, a, you're say you're a bank and you have a million customers or hundred thousand customers, ideally you would love for every single customer you would have a customer service agent that's right. assigned to that one customer. And they private banking for everybody. Exactly. You know you know everything about them. And like, and today, like yeah, you said private banking. Today, who gets that type of service? It's the really rich people. It's the really wealthy, high net worth people that get that one to one ratio or three to one ratio. Sometimes they get three people. Sometimes they on how rich they are and how much uh, assets they have in the bank. But how can we bring that experience to everybody? Right? Like what we, what we call it at Posh, we, we call it our mission, two things. One is to empower humans, right? And that's kind of the knowledge assistant type thing and um, helping um, even uh, community banks and and uh, uh, lower income areas of the country, like empowering them with the, with the uh, quality of service. Um, the second part of our vision is to democratize the VIP experience, right? Um, we believe that's a big motivator for us too, because historically, like, advancements in many areas of the world typically start with the top percent of the of the population and then they'll trickle down to everybody else um we'd love to accelerate that trickle down
1: yeah no i i love the democratizing the vip experience vision there i think it's a it's a fairly universal principle as well if you think about like back in the day who got to listen to music right nobles right the rich uh the powerful classes could right. hire musicians to perform for them and now everybody could plug in headphones and have fairly high quality music that they enjoy uh, right. same thing with shows entertainment um right. leisure of all sorts right yeah private shopping
0: order, order uh, uh doordash or something right a, exactly
1: push on that a little bit what about what about a longer time horizon what about a more personal perspective on this definition of success right instead of five years, instead of focusing on sort of the, the career stuff that clearly we're, we're very focused on, right. do you have a broader sense of what would make you content? in like sort of the 50 year horizon, right? When you're a little bit older, you look back at your life? What would that take? What do you think success in life means to you?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I, I think I'd feel bad if I didn't think I reached the potential that I had right that's a lot of it right um the circumstances that you're in the um the abilities you know you possess um how can you reach your potential and 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 that's hard to define like does your potential mean like impact on society does it mean like your potential to just make a happy life for yourself like there's different ways to interpret it but like one of the biggest things i think is fear of failure and, and also frankly sometimes just like laziness, right? That like stops people from doing things that they they, they could. Um, and I, I mean, I I I don't like harping on stuff that everybody talks about, but like, you know, obviously Jeff Bezos has that regretment framework, uh regret framework of how to look back um, you know, when you're old and say what I regret not doing or what I regret not trying. And that's kind of how you run your life. But th- that is powerful. Um and I think that that kind of lines with like just you reaching your potential. like if you if you didn't do something that you think you could have, you just didn't give it a try or you, or whatever, um, that feels bad. And I, I will say that like trying and failing is better than not trying, right? Like I, I don't think I would feel bad if if i if I didn't get to where we are now and if things failed earlier or whatever. But if I just went like the traditional career out and never took this plunge, I've had this itch in me, like, I I guess my grandma kind of maybe instilled that in me, but like, that would just feel like something's incomplete, right?
1: Yeah, totally agree. See, and I talk about it a lot, right? Like we we are sort of aspiring founders. We want to found a company one day. And part of that is the same thing. I I really feel that I'll look back and regret and, you know, feel that I've sort of wasted my potential if I didn't even try.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things
0: I'd love to do in life too. Like, um, you know, maybe, I, maybe I will start a restaurant someday because I like cooking and I can continue the torch from my grandma or something, right? But right, hey, I hope I hope healthcare gets really good. And I can have a long
1: life and I'll have plenty of time <laughs> to do these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And once yeah. you've sort of proven your potential, if you will, right? You've built a really successful business or a few. Uh, you've shaped the world to some extent. Then you can sort of pursue different things. And yeah, I mean, restaurant. hey,
0: restaurants can be really impactful, right? Um, right. It
1: just doesn't
2: scale the yeah. same way, though, right? Right, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 It may, may not, unless you're uh McDonald's <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, right. McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, cool.
2: yeah, so let's move to the deep questions section. There, If you ask any YC company, it's an AI company, right? 90% of the startups are now AI-related. And right. obviously, we're seeing an AI boom right now. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Is it another hype cycle that's going to die down soon, or is already dying down? Uh, also, you know, as an AI founder, I'm also curious about your take on this question: that is AI really good for humanity in the big picture?
0: Yeah, um, that's a lot to unpack there. Um, it's two entirely unpack- different questions, yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll save the humanity impact on AI. Like, I don't even know if I'm the best person to answer that. Question. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have poured a lot more time to study and forecast these things. Um, I'm just bullish in the near term. Like I I can't Mm -hmm. tell you what's going to happen a hundred years, but I think in the next 10 years, 20 years, I think it'll be a positive thing for, for the average human. Um, will it disrupt jobs and cause some pain? Yeah, it will. Um, but so every other technology advancement ever, right. Industrial revolution. Um, I think it, I think it ultimately creates more opportunities and uplifts people's quality of life. And, um, You know, that's what I'm bullish about. Uh, But yeah, uh, we're definitely in a hype cycle, but I don't think it's like completely unwarranted hype. Um, We are seeing a lot of tangible benefits of AI. We're seeing a lot of tangible benefits of generative AI. And I think as long as value is real, this won't be like a fad, right? Um, You have to like a, a good product or a good company solves a real problem, right? And I fear that right now, because of the hype, there's a lot of companies that are creating AI features, but not solving actual problems. Right.
1: And there's that's solutions the in of search hype. of problems.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the feature space of a product is probably a lot bigger than the actual problem space that that product is meant to solve. Right. That's that's, that's the All dichotomy right. there. Um, and that doesn't mean that product is bad. It just means that maybe people won't use a lot of that stuff, um, and maybe that kind of Brings down how much is being poured into this, but uh, I, I, I'm bullish on AI. Like I, I, I think we're in a hype cycle, but I also think there's, there's some like honesty in there as well.
2: Right. It's uh, better than the Web three hype cycle.
0: <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> I'm curious opinion. though. Right. Just poke you a little bit though. So you, you mentioned in the short term or in the medium mm-hmm. term, it's going to displace jobs. Obviously, right. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And in turn, that's going to create a lot of uneasiness, uh, especially for less skilled people. How are we thinking about that problem? Uh, Like, you know, if let's say if if every just push it to the extreme, right? If every customer support person is going to be replaced by AI, that's going to create a lot of problems, right? Uh, As a society, how do we solve that?
0: Yeah, I don't think we're near that point, honestly. Like, I think that's also quite a ways away, but. Um, look, even like engineers, some people, software engineers are worried, oh, my gosh, like, right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get automated, right? I, I think what we're seeing right now is that AI is not automating away people right now. Hmm. It's automating away people that don't want to use AI. Like, uh, engineers that are leveraging AI tools are outperforming engineers who are not. Right. Right. Um, Content writers and marketers that are embracing AI tools are going to be more efficient, maybe have better ideas and outperform those who are not. Right. Pulsar agents that have AI assistance will have better uh, resolutions and maybe happier customers and themselves be happier than those who are not, right? I think that's the era we're going to be in for some time. So not to worry about like the, the replacement impact anytime soon. Um, and I, I see that as quite kind of far away. And one reason I see that too, especially in the customer service side, especially with banks, is that... Banks today are typically operating very understaffed already.
2: right?
0: So it's not like, oh, we bring AI, you fire people. That's not the case. It's like, oh my gosh, I wish we had a lot more people. AI is helping me feel a little bit better, but we still need everybody we have, and we still need more people too. You know, right. um, One thing we've heard from our customers, by the way, is that you know we, uh, a call center uh, is interesting in the sense that like it's a touch point with the customer. right? Um, one thing that everybody wants a call center to do is not just like resolve problems, which is important, but also like generate revenue by nudging them on the next product or service or upsell or something. Right. And, and banks are no different. Like they, they want to have their call centers also driving some top line growth, but when you have an understaffed call center and you have a barrage of calls, right. And COVID made some of that worse because branches shut down during COVID and some branches never opened back up. So you have, um, a shift from a balance between in-person and, and uh, phone conversations to a lot of in-person conversations becoming phone calls on top of the existing phone calls because branches were shut down and some of them are still shut down. Um, so as call volumes went up, you had the great resignation happen. And sometimes you're still dealing with understaffing. You can't tell your people to spend the extra 30 seconds to like build the relationship with the caller and make that next recommendation. Like You're telling them, right. like, you know what? Hang up the call as quickly as you can and get to the next one because we have a queue. Right. right. And that's where I think AI can be really valuable. Like we can, right. we can kind of figure out how to solve those easier stuff that don't require you to actually have a human help you. And then let the humans actually help with the more complex things, but also let them build the relationships with the with the customer and and give them that high hospitality type experience and and ultimately, you know, help drive revenue. Right. Like that's that's I think um a better target to grow into before we are anywhere near like
1: job replacement concerns.
2: That's a very good right. insight, yeah.
1: I, I think a lot of people say this now, right? Like AIs don't replace jobs. People with AI replace people without AI's jobs. Yeah, exactly. Right? I think CNBC
0: I think put an article about that. 14% average uh, productivity gains is, is what they saw, so. 14%? Uh, yeah, MIT and Stanford actually ran a study. CNBC, like, obviously read the paper and, you know, read an article about it. But yeah, 14% average uh, lift in um, uh, knowledge workers that had AI companions.
1: I actually feel like uh, if that is true at the broader societal scale, it could be one of the critical ingredients to how we sustain this economy, right? Like sometimes right. we talk about topics like the decline of birth rates and the, the way our economy works is it has to keep growing while with fewer people, the only way that's going to keep happening is an increase in productivity, like real productivity, economic activity. And you know, if AI is that, then great. Uh, we progress is sort of not optional. We, we have to embrace it because, you know, having things stay the same is not going to work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So another question for you, Karin, we think a lot about AI and how all this new technology will change the world, but as someone who's been thinking about this day and night for the past few years, maybe more, um, what are some of the interesting topics you think about a lot on the daily?
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I think about is is that vision I talked about a little earlier, right? Like every business would love to have that one to one, three to one, whatever ratio of people that are obsessed over each individual customer. um And you know what's really interesting, and Sam Altman had a quote recently um, he said that what this wave of AI is doing is it's diminishing the marginal cost of intelligence, right. One of the reasons why businesses obviously can't have the one-to-one ratio of like agents to customers is you can't you can't afford it. It's too expensive with human labor, right? Um, even even like outsourcing, offshoring, none of that none of that math ever works out. It's just it's just too expensive. Um, AI gives you the ability to do that. We're not there yet. It's a vision, and we'll we'll get there. I'm pretty confident we'll get there. I don't know exactly when, but um, the cost of intelligence is going down, and it unlocks a lot of things. That will help make people's lives better right right um and one thing i think about a lot is that you know when we think about like customer service as a whole and that's a big part of obviously uh, the business we're in customer service tends to be okay customer has a problem they will take they have the activation energy to pick up the phone or chat or whatever it is to reach out someone's there to listen to them and then solve the problem um rarely do people really talk about the proactive side of it right like diagnosing an issue before it happens or predicting an issue before it happens, um, proactively reaching out. Like you don't normally have call center agents calling you to not sell you something, but to like actually say, Hey, by the way, like I can, I, you know, I'm not trying to sell you, but like, you might want to do this because we see that this could become an issue. Right. Like that's like, that, that is what for me is like that type of hospitality experience that, you know, I'm talking about like my, my grandma, like she's really great at that. You know, like she, uh, I remember in the restaurant times, like, she would, um, you know, see that like some kids spilt whatever dish, you know, and the parents are obviously like cleaning up the kid's mess and they're upset. Just bring another one without even them asking about it, without even anybody saying like, Oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I, I it's, it's Indian food. So it's like chat, you know, or something, but, um, or, or a drink, but it's like those little things, like those things matter. and And that's a good example of like that proactive hospitality. Um, and I want proactive hospitality to be embedded in even industries like banking. Right. And I think that's where that's where I get really excited.
1: Yeah, that's a It's another really good observation. Because like that applies also pretty broadly, right? Like healthcare, education, a lot of the times prevention and proactive caretaking is much more efficient uh, and effective than yeah. if something goes wrong enough for them to reach out to a doctor, to a customer service agent, they're already having a bad time. Right. And it could have been prevented. Exactly.
0: And, and I trust you more if that happens, right? Like if if you reach out and say hey like something could go wrong you might want to do this or if something could go wrong do you mind if i do this for you and i'm just like yeah sure like that sounds great i'm going to trust you more and i'm more likely to probably buy more stuff from you too right um even better if like you're also personalizing what you're trying to sell me as opposed to like me fitting three random criteria and and honestly i'm not even
1: a good fit i just happen to pass the filters (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense so What was your observation of all this new stuff coming out? Is it a threat to people who are currently building? Because I've certainly seen use cases where companies have built a product around this premise that like, for example, ChatGPT can't make a reservation for you on a hotel, whatever. Well, next thing you know, ChatGPT introduces plugins and all of a sudden it can. And so uh, I guess my broader question there is, building applications or products in the AI space, how do you deal with this constant You know onslaught of like advancements and do you think there's a real durable moat to be built and if so what is it
0: yeah yeah and i mean it's like something that applies i think to a lot of businesses not just like chat virtual assistant companies right um like technology moves so fast now it's only getting faster and faster that sometimes things will hit you before you even see it coming (laughs) so um i think like that's that's another reason why like i'm bullish on vertical ai applications because you build tighter modes, not just on the, the data that you're collecting, or like these fine tuning of these models that like take significant lift to actually like really unlock some of those values. But um, banks are just notorious for having really legacy systems too. Uh, and it takes a lot of time, resources and expertise to actually like connect to those systems well. Um, and And that's been an issue for a long time. I don't see that problem like magically changing. Like, you know, I don't think overnight there's going to be suddenly like really nice sexy APIs in the banking industry. Like, that's That's been preached for a while. We're not there yet. I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. Um, and then you get into like really kind of complex use cases, like uh, specific types of loans or, um, you know, dealing with like specific fraud edge cases. Those are things I don't think you just throw APIs at GPT-4 and say, hey, like you, you, got, you do it, right? Like tolerance for risk is pretty low in industries like banking. You need to have a partner that has the has demonstrated the ability to live up to like kind of that bar right Mm -hmm. um i think that's where like having a purpose-built vertical solution in this space makes a lot of sense um and look like we can always leverage the latest and greatest of what's happening on the foundational model side like that i think doesn't become as much of a differentiator over time like obviously like how you fine tune it and stuff that's that that does become a differentiator the data that you have to actually run those processes but um we're already seeing commoditization in many aspects of like this foundational stack. There's more and more companies that are uh getting a lot of funding to build LLMs and LMs for different industries and all these things. So like I think you you will see um very successful application layer companies in this space uh, solely because foundation level companies probably cannot go do everything, right? And they may not want to do everything. Like they might realize like some problems are just really messy and too vertically complex that it's not worth it, and right. I, I'm bullish that banking banking is one of those industries for the for the reasons I mentioned.
2: Yeah, interesting. We're still so early in the in the cycle, I think. Right, like yeah. right now, the, the 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 company benefits most is Nvidia. <laughs> <who> is at, <laughs> yeah. the, at the, at yeah. the bottom Below layer in the stack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like to break that down, right? The moat that that you can build in this space by being vertically focused is it sounds like it's twofold, right? One is a technological moat, right? In this case, fine tuning or like specific uh, adaptation of the model. It's not just throwing stuff into ChatGPT or whatever it is, right? It is different. Uh, so you can serve those use cases better. The other one I think is a business model or a distribution kind of moat where you have all these relationships with these banks. It's not like OpenAI has the interest. Like they don't, like a lot of other businesses don't have the business model alignment to solve vertical specific problems, especially for, industries like banking. I suppose it doesn't apply to the same, it doesn't apply to all verticals the same, right? Maybe verticals with a higher switching cost and a higher cost of like trust um, will be more defensible like banking versus uh, I think there's a a more consumer applications, for example, there's a much lower switching cost. Like sure you made Lenza and I could play with that and create portraits of myself. But if tomorrow anyone else builds Lens B uh, I, I'm going to use that if it's cheaper, right? Like I have no yeah. real reason to stay with that. So I think, right. you yeah. know, B2B vertical specific approach there makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. All right, Karin. Hey, that was one of the, the most informative and insightful conversations I've had in a while. So appreciate your time today and really, really appreciate you sharing all the insights with, with us. So yeah, have a great day. A lot of fun. Thanks a lot. All right.